Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. From Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, this little interaction between Jacob Marley, the first ghost that appears to Ebenezer Scrooge and Scrooge. Scrooge looks at Jacob Marley and says, Who are you? And then Jacob Marley responds famously, ask me who I was. Ask me who I was. Do not ask me who I am, but ask me who I was. So what's the implication here in Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol for the afterlife? Jacob Marley being dead those seven years leading up to the story, and then now he appears as a ghost, and he says, I'm not who I was. Well, this is a popular implication that the afterlife is some otherly existence where we become something or someone other than who we were. So in this interaction between Scrooge and Marley, understanding it's a fictional tale and it's a wonderful story and great movies and stuff like that, we're just taking this as an implication. People do tend to think of the afterlife in that way, that somehow we're something or someone completely different than who we were or what we were before. So the question for us is, as we talk about heaven, the afterlife, the resurrection, the intermediate state, is that what the Bible te teaches about heaven? Does the Bible teach that upon death, we become something completely different or someone completely different than who we are right now? Does the Bible teach that? Well, what does the Bible teach about ourselves what does the Bible teach about our unique personalities, our individual selves, now, when we die, in the resurrection? What does it teach us about others and our interaction with others here in the afterlife and then in the resurrection? What about relationships as we think about going to heaven and the intermediate state and the future heaven, the new earth? What about relationships that we have known here? Will there be friendships? Will there be marriages? Will there be uh, the, the fam familial relationship between parents and children? Will there be other relationships with other people? Well, the Bible answers these questions or it gives us at least some insights into those answers. And that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. In page, on page 68 in your study guide, beginning with those connection questions, uh, here's where we kind of begin thinking tonight. Imagine being a child again and being placed in a room with a bunch of other children you don't know. Imagine being, and this is terrifying for some of us as adults, isn't it? But imagine being a child and being placed in a room with a bunch of other children and people that you don't know. Even worse than being an adult, I think, because when you're a child you have that helpless feeling without your parents or someone that you know. So what are your thoughts and your feelings in that moment? Obviously, probably fear, certainly uncomfortable, 
but more just scared than anything. I mean, even tonight, plopping Isaac down in the nursery, and then I tried to leave, and it was just him and Lily and Becca in there, and he was crying because he just loves his daddy so much. But if you're a child and you just plop down in the middle of a room with a bunch of other people, a bunch of other children that you don't know, uh, there's fear, there's discomfort there. So the question the book asks is, what would have to happen for that to change? For there not to be discomfort, for there not to be fear or stress or anxiety in that room with all these people you don't know. Well, the answer is obvious. The introduction of someone that you do know. Mommy walks into the room. Daddy walks into the room. Maybe your siblings walk into the room or some friends, some familiar faces. Why does that bring us peace in that situation? In a room with a bunch of people we don't know and suddenly people we do know appear, a familiar face is there. Why does that bring us peace? Well, because there's comfort in that we know them we can talk to them they know us there's familiarity there's a relationship already established there that brings comfort and so the question is do you think that that peace will be part of heaven doesn't it make sense that that peace of a familiar face the comfort of having someone you know and love and trust there do you not think that that kind of peace and comfort and hope will be part of heaven. And so all this floods back into those questions about who will we be? What will we be? Will it be like Jacob Marley, where we're not who we were, we're something completely different for all eternity, and we're never ourselves again? And if so, what kind of hope is that for us, and what kind of hope is that for our loved ones? So, what will we be? What will we be? If you're using the study guide, this is pages uh, 69 through 70, the first three questions here in the study. First of all, turning your Bibles to the book of Philippians chapter 3 for this first set of questions. Philippians chapter 3. When we talk about going to heaven, we've, we've discussed uh, or the, the future heaven being a new earth, a new creation, and we are made new, and we've kind of talked about several times what that new means. You know, does it mean that the old is completely gone and done away with? And so this brings up that question, if I'm a new person and I'm in a new creation and a new earth and new Jerusalem, will I be me? Will you be you? Will we have those relationships anymore? Well, listen to how Paul describes that change or that transformation from the old to the new in Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 through 21. Paul says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. What kind of transformation is Paul speaking of here? What is new? Is it that we're no longer the person we were and we're someone completely different or something completely different? No. Well, how does he describe this transformation? There's a transformation of our bodies. Now, what he says? That our body will be transformed into what? A body like that of the glorified and risen Jesus. One of the things that blew my mind when I began thinking about the ascension, you know, all my life I heard about the ascension and you saw videos, uh, not videos, movies, uh, depictions of the ascension and Jesus going up in heaven and you think, well, that's just, you know, that's a fitting end to it. He goes up into heaven. But what is being declared to us there in the ascension? 
when Jesus comes um, and he's born in Bethlehem in the incarnation, true God takes on true humanity, right? He doesn't become less God, but he adds human nature to his true godness in the person of Jesus Christ. Truly God, truly man, one person. Okay? Now, when he dies, he's buried, he's resurrected, he ascends to heaven, he doesn't stop being man. He is now and forever glorified man, but also truly God. And so his ascension is not his translation into being something completely different. No, the Son of God became a Son of Man. He died, and in his ascension, he is still forever glorified humanity and also truly and fully God. So there are implications of that for us in that Jesus in his resurrection and his ascension does not cease to be human, but listen, is now more human than even you and I are. Jesus in his glorified ascended body is more human than you and I are. Why would I say that? Well, because our humanity has been tainted by the fall. It's been tainted by sin. It's been shattered by the curse. We still bear the image of God. God still looks at us and sees his image, albeit shattered. We reflect his glory in a way. Jesus, though, untainted by the fall, unruined by sin, truly, perfectly, gloriously human, and he will be forever. And so what Paul says here is what he is, we too will be. What Jesus is now in his glorified, resurrected body, Paul says, that is what we will be as well. We will be transformed, and this old body will be made like Jesus' resurrected, glorified body. Well, still, when it comes to recognizing each other, does the Bible teach individual recognition in the resurrection? Okay, we agree that we're going to die and go to heaven. We've hopefully agreed to this point that there's going to be a day of resurrection, that our bodies will be raised. We just talked about this. Our bodies will be transformed like Jesus' body. We all agree to this point. Even then, what will we be in the resurrection? Will we be ourselves? Will we be recognizable? Will you be recognizable? Will I know you and you know me and all around? Well, in the book of Job, you don't have to turn there, Job 19, verses 26 through 27. Job 19, 26 through 27. That's where we see that famous declaration by Job. I think I actually have it in your handout. At the top of the second page. Yep. In my flesh, I will see God. Listen to how he capitalizes on that. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another. Job confesses that when he sees God on the last day, it will be him, Job, first person singular, that sees him. Not something else. Not someone else, but that same Job, albeit now glorified, will see God with his own eyes. How about in Luke chapter 24, verse 39? You don't have to turn there, but I'll read it to you. 
Luke chapter 24, verse 39. This is after the resurrection, and Jesus has appeared to his disciples, and some of them do not believe it is him. Notice, after the resurrection, glorified body. Some do not believe it's really him. But what does Jesus say in Luke chapter 24, verse 39? See my hands and my feet, that it is myself. It's me. Touch me and see. For spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. Something about Jesus after his resurrection, at times it seems, was not recognizable. When he was out on the water and they were in the boat, maybe it was the distance. It was hard to see and know who it is. And, you know, Peter went swimming to him after they caught the fish. And Jesus reveals himself in the Gospel of John there on the shore. Uh, or maybe it was Mary in the garden. And maybe she was crying so much or in so much distress she didn't recognize him. But it might have been something else about him. How about the disciples on the road to Emmaus that did not know him the whole journey until they got to their house and they broke bread, and it says some, they, they suddenly realized who he was, and then he was gone. So sometimes there are things that seem unrecognizable, but nevertheless there are other times where they get close enough, something happens, and they're able to see. This seems to be one of those moments. They know it looks like Jesus, but they think it can't be Jesus because we saw him die. It's a ghost. It's a spirit. And so Jesus eats and he drinks. and He says, touch my hands, touch my feet. To Thomas, he says, touch my side and put your fingers in the nail scars. What's going on here? Jesus is saying, it's me. It's the same Jesus they knew before his crucifixion. But now in his resurrected, glorified body, it's still him. In fact, we must confess that as Christians. To believe anything else is heresy. To believe that this Jesus in his resurrected state is something completely different, like he stopped being man or he stopped being God or he's some mixture of the two, is heresy. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus only resurrected in his spirit. Uh, Muslims do not believe Jesus even died and that his resurrection was some sort of spiritual event. We as Christians must confess with the Bible that the man Jesus really died, that he was buried, and that that same man rose on the third day physically, not just spiritually, but physically rose from the dead. And he appears now to his disciples, and he is very much recognizable. So what are some misconceptions that people do have about this? Maybe from other religions, maybe even from within Christianity. We've talked a little bit about Buddhism and Hinduism. Just to hit on that again, uh, in Eastern religions in general, Buddhism, Hinduism, Confucianism, Taoism, Shintoism, whatever, you just take one and pick. They all seem to be centered around getting to this state of oneness with the universe. And that in Hinduism, through endless cycles of reincarnation, you kind of keep learning and keep growing and keep climbing up this cycle till eventually you reach this state of perfection called nirvana, which is not heaven as we know it, but really is just ceasing to really exist. And to them, that's heaven because you've stopped suffering and you've stopped wanting stuff. And so now you're just one with the universe. You are existence itself, but it's not you. You is out of the picture. Because you've already probably come back as a cockroach and a donkey and an elephant and everything else by that time anyway to the time you reach nirvana. 
So there's obvious differences there. Um, some forms of Judaism, conservative, orthodox Judaism still teaches a resurrection. Some forms of Judaism do not, or even an afterlife for that matter. What about, though, from even within Christianity? Now, maybe you or someone you have known or a teacher or a preacher you've heard has a completely different view of existence in heaven. Maybe you've been taught or maybe you've heard or maybe you've just thought or imagined that it will be something completely other and completely different. And I know it's going to be great, but I won't really be me and you won't really be you and we won't really be us <laughs> in heaven. And it'll be something just completely different. Maybe you've actually thought that or been taught that. Maybe you assume that all earthly pleasures and all earthly joys, such as individuality or uniqueness or our earthly relationships, maybe you've assumed that because those things are earthly and fleshly, that they are evil and temporary and therefore in heaven will not exist. There won't be any individualism in heaven. or There won't be any friendships or relationships like we know. Because that's here on earth and that's something completely different. Haven't we kind of thought this way sometimes? Remember in Genesis chapter 1, God made man in his own image. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. And part of what it meant to be made in God's image was not distorted or twisted by the fact that he made them Male and female. From the beginning, there was individual personalities, individual characteristics in the good gift of gender. Nevertheless, God says, this is man. I've made them in my image, male and female. He created them. How about in Genesis chapter 2, when God takes Eve from Adam's bone? Remember, what does he say before that? It is not good. What does he say is not good? That the man should be alone. It is not good that the man should be alone. So this uniqueness in our personalities, our differences, who we are as individuals, not just male and female, but in every difference we have, those things are not necessarily part of the fall. Now, sinful things are, obviously, but not just our differences and our uniqueness, even down to male and female. And from the beginning, God said, you know what's not good? that man should be alone. He needs community. He needs relationships. And God looked at that and said, it is good. So if God looked at that relationship and looked at those individuals and said, this is good, what makes us think that that's going to pass away in heaven? In the book, Heaven, on page 288, this is in your handout, I think, Distinctiveness is God's creation, not Satan's. What makes us unique will survive. In fact, I, this kind of blew me away. Much of our uniqueness may be uncovered for the first time. Think about that. That, that Jesus in his glorified resurrected body is now more fully human than you and I are. And so when we receive our glorified resurrected bodies, it makes sense that we will be 
perfectly, gloriously human in a way that we are not now. And the author reminds us that who we are as individuals, our distinctives, our individualism, our unique traits, those things are not part of the fall. Those are part of God's good design and God's good creation, and they will survive into the resurrection. And in fact, the author goes further, rightly, I think, that might even be more so in the resurrection in terms of understanding who we really are apart from the presence of sin and Satan. Also in the book on page 282, I understand that my book is, and your book might be different. If you ordered a book through the church, they should be the same, but there are other editions. So if you can't find the quotes when I say them, go back and and you'll find them. Does that make sense? It's helpful, isn't it? Go back and you'll find them later. On page 282, near the bottom, third paragraph in the bottom, uh, what makes you, you? What makes you, you? It's not only your body, but also your memory, personality traits, gifts, passions, preferences, and interests. In the final resurrection, I believe all of these facets will be restored and amplified, untarnished, by sin and the curse. And then to reiterate what Job says, it is I who will see God with my own eyes. I and not another. So if there's any part of us that has thought of our individual distinctives and our traits, the non-sinful ones now, the non-wicked ones, if there's any part of us that has thought that that will pass away, or that it will be passed away for our friends, our spouses, or our children, or our parents, or our siblings that have gone on. If we've ever thought that that will be done away with, we're thinking wrongly about what heaven is because we're thinking wrongly about what creation is. God made them male and female, distinct, unique. And he says, this is good. That will survive the resurrection because that's part of God's good creation from the beginning. Okay, so what about relationships? If we understand that we will be us, I will be me, you will be you, not another, Job says. So what does that mean for our relationships with each other? Will those resurrection relationships continue? Well, think about those post-resurrection appearances of Jesus and ask what does that imply about our resurrected selves. Again, from Luke chapter 24, when he appeared there to his disciples, and he ate, and he drank, and they knew who he was, and they touched him, and it was the same Jesus. In John chapter 20, when he appears in the upper room, they know exactly who he is. Peace be with you, he says, and then he just kind of disappears. And then John 21, when he appears out on the Sea of Galilee, and they have breakfast by the sea, Peter knows who he is. They have a, they have a whole conversation. And Jesus, in his resurrected body, knows what Peter did in his denial, and he restores him. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And he has a conversation about John, the apostle, too, there on the seashore. So it's the same Jesus with memory. He understands and remembers what happened to him, what happened to them. He knows who they are. They know who he is. Again, these post-resurrection appearances imply that Jesus was still truly human, albeit now he's glorified with 
this might be interesting, some unique abilities. I mean, Jesus in his resurrected glorified body can seem to appear and disappear in a moment's notice. He can appear in locked rooms, not to mention that he floats into the air. You know, in the ascension, he actually defies gravity and rises up off the ground. Maybe there's hope for my future of flying there in the resurrection. Jesus is truly human, but glorified with seemingly unique abilities. But what he is not, listen carefully, what he is not is unhuman. He is not something different than human. Whatever he is, he is still human, glorified human, absolutely, beautifully, gloriously human. This is an interesting discussion when... Uh, people blame their sins and their mistakes on their humanity, right? I'm only human. You've heard this. You might have said that. I make mistakes. I mess up. I'm only human. We as Christians should always clarify what we mean by that. I'm fallen human. I am sinful human. Because to be simply human is not to be a sinner, but to be fallen humanity which we all are, is to be a sinner. Jesus became human, fully, truly human, but without sin. And what he is and what he is right now, we will one day be just like him, absolutely, gloriously, fully, wonderfully human, without sin, because that wasn't part of the equation to begin with. In Acts chapter 1, If you want to turn there with me, you can. We'll read a few verses. Acts chapter 1. Simple question. You answer me when I ask you right now. Where did Jesus go in his ascension? Someone tell me. It's easy. Heaven. Good job. (laughs) He went to heaven. To the right hand of the Father. There's maybe other things we could say, but the right answer, Jesus went into heaven. Uh, Look in Acts chapter 1, verses... um, one through three. In the first book, O Theophilus, Luke writing this, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. And after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself, himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now look down at verse nine. After he gave the disciples the commission to go, when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by him in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now, I believe Jesus was going up into the sky, and they called that heaven, and they were looking up into the sky and heaven, but I think there's also a double entendre here, as the angels say, the same way you saw him go into the heavens and heaven, he will also come from heaven. So Jesus, in his glorified body, ascends to heaven. 
where did the disciples say Jesus was? Look in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 29. This is Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, that is death, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, resurrection, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus, the man from Nazareth, that you crucified. Where did Jesus go in his ascension? He went to heaven. Where did the apostles say Jesus went in his ascension? To the right hand of the Father in heaven. Now, get this, and I cannot explain all the ins and outs of this. This means that Jesus, in his glorified, risen, physical body, is somewhere in real space and real time, in heaven, at the right hand of God the Father. I don't know all that that means, okay? I don't know if you can take a rocket there. We used to sing a song in first grade. I remember it to this day. We would count down from 10 to 1, and we'd say some, I can't remember the first line, somewhere in outer space, God has prepared a place. I don't remember that. We got in a rocket, we went to heaven. That's all I remember. Probably not a sound theological song. Yeah, it might be a little Mormon. (laughs) It might be a little Mormon. But here's the truth of this. Somewhere in real space and real time, however that works, is where Jesus is right now in his physical, glorified human body at the right hand of the Father in heaven. The same Jesus, Peter said, who was born of Mary. The same Jesus of Nazareth who died and who rose and who ascended and who will come again as he went into heaven. He will come from heaven and we will know him. We will know him and he will know us. So this tells us a little bit about relationships, at least with Jesus, who was truly human, who is now truly human recognizable who he was, knows his disciples, they know him, and it's promised that he's gone there, he's coming back here, and he will know us and we will know who he is. So what about earthly relationships then, our earthly relationships with each other? Take Jesus for a moment out of the conversation. Well, I know you, well, you know me. Well, look at the book of First Thessalonians. If you want to turn there, you don't have to. First Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm going the wrong way. First Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, verses 17 through 20. Listen to how Paul talks about these other believers. 
But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope, and look at this, or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Here Paul talks about these believers, this church he planted there in Thessalonica, how he talks about them in light of the day of resurrection. I wanted to come see you face to face. Satan hindered us. But know this, you are our joy and our crown before the coming of the Lord. In other words, when Jesus returns in that day of resurrection, I will know you, Paul says, and you will know me. And we will boast in you and we will glory in you and what the Lord has done in your life that led to that moment on the day of resurrection. Look at the same book, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 10. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you are always remembering us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason we long to see you, um, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and afflictions, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith? In verse 9, what thanksgiving can we return to God for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. If that kind of joy and that kind of zeal and love exists between these believers now before God, what makes us think that in that day of resurrection, that joy and that affection and that love would somehow be diminished and not fulfilled? Look at uh, the next chapter, chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, those people, dead believers who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, you see that? Because Jesus died and rose again, God will bring with him those, those people who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep, the same people who died, the same people who died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, the voice of an archangel, the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we, together, those who had died, those who are alive, will always be with the Lord. Therefore, listen, encourage one another with those words. How did we start this? What were these words about? About those who had fallen asleep, about those who have passed on, those who had died in the Lord. And these are words of comfort, not just about us and our resurrection, but about them and their resurrection, that we will be caught up together on that day of resurrection with the Lord, and we will forever be 
with the Lord. This reveals earthly relationships are prized, or they are to be prized, they're to be cherished, they're precious, and listen, they will not be diminished when we see Jesus, but they will be full when we see Jesus. So this interesting question here, will this affection for other people disappear in heaven? I think the strong answer we see here is no. We can sometimes think that, oh, wait a minute, all I need in heaven is God. True need. Heaven is the presence of Jesus, and if heaven was heaven without the presence of Jesus, it would be hell. We understand that. But there are good things that we will experience in heaven based on our earthly relationships. Yes, God is all we need. Christ is all we need. But our love and our joy and our affection for other people is not idolatry. And it will not simply disappear in heaven. Rather, it will be fulfilled and perfected. Why? Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, it was part of God's good design to begin with. It was not good that man should be alone. It was good that he have a helper, community, relationships, a wife in that instance, and then children and family. Those are good things that God made for us to enjoy, and they will not be diminished or taken away in heaven. They will be redeemed and fulfilled in heaven. This is a quote from missionary Amy Carmichael at the bottom of page 346. Shall we know one another in heaven? Shall we love and remember? I do not think anyone need wonder about this or doubt for a single moment. We are never told we shall because I expect it was not necessary to say anything about this which our own hearts tell us. We do not need words. For if we think for a minute now, we know. Would you be yourself if you did not love and remember? We are told that we shall be like our Lord Jesus. Surely this does not mean in holiness only, but in everything. And does he not know and love and remember? He would not be himself if he did not, and we should not be ourselves if we did not. Quote from the book um, from a historian of the church named Venerable Bede. I think it's in your handout. A great multitude of dear ones is there expecting us, a vast and mighty crowd of parents, brothers, and children, secure now in their own safety, anxious yet for our salvation, long that we may come to their right and embrace them, to that joy which will be common to us and to them, to that pleasure expected by our fellow servants as well as ourselves, to that full and perpetual felicity. If it be a pleasure to go to them, let us eagerly and covetously hasten on our way that we may soon be with them and soon be with Christ. These relationships that we have on earth are holy. They're good. They're part of God's good creation. They're not part of the fall. And so in the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth, it makes sense, as Carmichael said, maybe the Bible shouldn't have to explicitly say this because it seems like it's understood, or it should be, that these things are part of the good creation of God and therefore they will be in heaven and they will be part of heaven. And it's not wrong to say that will be part of what makes heaven heaven. Yes, the presence of Jesus is a non-negotiable, but the presence of others there is part of what makes it heaven. And those relationships and the knowledge of those relationships 
is part of what makes heaven, heaven. Lastly, let's talk about this perfect piece in your study guide, page 73, connection question, I'm sorry, question number eight. What kind of peace does God promise? I won't make you turn to those, those passages, uh, Zechariah 9, Ezekiel 37, Isaiah 42. Here's the short answer, real, universal peace. Sometimes when we say peace as Christians, uh, we're tempted to only think of it in a spiritual sense. The peace that passes understanding, you know, in our hearts, and our minds by the Holy Spirit. And that's certainly peace, and that is real peace. But there's another kind of real peace which the Old Covenant points us to, which is fulfilled in Jesus, which we know is coming. A day of real, physical, universal, cosmological, earthly peace that all creation will be. The Hebrew word for peace is shalom, which doesn't mean just quiet and calm, but it means whole, put together, unified. So when God promises us peace in Zechariah 9, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and everywhere else in the Old Testament, there's a promise of real, tangible, physical peace, wholeness that is coming. And when we turn to the New Testament, we see who the source of that peace is. And it is the Lord Jesus Christ who is the Prince of Peace. Listen to what Matthew says about him in Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, verses 18 through 21. Quoting from Isaiah, applying it to Jesus. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Who is the source of this wholeness and this peace and this salvation from God? It's none other than Jesus. So what does this tell us about the peace of the world that is to come? Well, it tells us that that peace found in friendships, that kind of peace that's found in love, that's found in relationships with each other, will be true peace, real peace, perfect peace, not as a substitute or a distraction from the peace we have with Jesus and God in heaven, Listen, but it will be because of the peace that we have with God that that peace we have with each other will be so tangible and so real and so full. Again, those things will not be done away with, but they will be restored, redeemed, renewed forever. Old gospel song, you can hear Vestal singing it in your head maybe. Third verse says, it's a place where there is no misunderstanding. And from all enmity and strife, we're free. No unkind wounds, no unkind words that wound the heart are spoken. 
this is just what heaven means to me. I think it's so interesting that in that old gospel song, in the middle of <coughs> these images of seeing Jesus and seeing our loved ones, there's this kind of unique verse for Southern gospel music. There's, there's this unique verse about what it means for us to be in heaven. No misunderstandings. How many families and friendships and churches and relationships have been disrupted and torn apart by misunderstandings, arguments, maybe many, sadly, ones that ended, unended, in the death of someone you were quarreling with or in a fight with or misunderstanding with, and they were believers and you're a believer. Think about the reconciliation that will come to that relationship in heaven where there will be no misunderstandings and all will be perfect peace between you and that person or you and those people. From all enmity and strife, both individually, nationally, there'll be no more war, they'll beat their swords into plowshares. Remember, that's promise of the coming kingdom. No unkind words that wound the heart will be spoken. No more arguments, no more quarreling, no more misunderstanding each other, no more trying to figure out what someone means in a text because you can't hear the inflection of their voice over the text, right? I told Matt and Zane when we text each other, I'm going to start doing the little, I have the thing where you can push the microphone and record your text, like a little walkie-talkie, and it just, it, so they can hear the inflection in my voice and not think I'm saying something rude to them or more them to me, which is often the case. There'll be none of that in heaven. All will be peace, all will be whole, all will be holy, all will be righteous. Not just in our relationship with God, but our relationship to other people. Uh, family members, friends, spouses, children, all of that. What a wonderful promise and a wonderful picture we see there of heaven. What will we be? What will we be who we are now? Just redeemed and restored and renewed. And you will be who you are, except redeemed and restored and renewed. And our relationship will be restored and redeemed and renewed and perfect forever, just like it is with the Lord Jesus Christ forever and ever. Let's pray. Thank you, our God and Father, for the gift of heaven and the knowledge of knowing who we will be, knowing what we will be, because we see who you are. And in your resurrected body, the reality we read in scripture of your resurrection, we see our own resurrection. We see love and joy and peace. We see knowledge. We see family, friends. All of that is part of your resurrection and all of that will be part of our resurrection. We give you thanks for that wonderful promise we have. Not just, above all, seeing you and being with you forever, but that you've thrown in with that, being with our loved ones, our friends, and our children, forever and ever in your presence, in a perfect, holy, righteous, eternal relationship of joy and love. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the gospel, which gives us hope beyond our wildest imagination. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.